Last week, we looked at the first six verses of this chapter. And if you were with us, you'll remember I explained the difficulty with a text like Ephesians 3, 1 through 6, is that it is, in Paul's argument, a digression. It's not actually the main line of argument that he carries forward in those verses. And so as I wrestle with what is his argument in chapter 3, we're then confronted with the question, what do we do with the digression? And last week, we looked at these introductory verses to chapter 3, primarily noting Paul's example. So by way of review, he gives to us in the first six verses of the chapter truths that he had previously spoken throughout chapter 2, the wonder of the Jew and Gentile now being united together in Christ and worshipping together, but he does so with an autobiographical accent. And so last week, as we looked at the first six verses of chapter 3, we considered Paul's example and how he can function for us as one whom we should imitate with particular reference to the stewardship of God's grace. Verse 2 of chapter 3, Paul says, you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace given to me. And the question that I sought to answer last week is how we, in turn, can be found as faithful stewards of God's grace. And the example that Paul sets for us in the first six verses is at least that we should acknowledge God's grace in our lives, seek to communicate it to others, and finally to practice it. That was last week's sermon. And the flow of thought continues into this week. The title of the sermon, again, learning Stewards God's Grace, part two, simply because as Paul continues to expound the riches of the gospel, he persists with that autobiographical accent, thereby providing yet more examples to us of how we can be stewards of God's grace. I want to ask the same question this evening. How can we be found faithful stewards of God's grace? Same question as we asked last week. And now, through verses 7 to 13, note another handful of principles by which Paul lived his life, conducted his ministry, principles that we would do well to imitate. The first of which is that we should acknowledge our unworthiness. How can we be found faithful stewards of God's grace? We acknowledge our unworthiness. Look at verse 7. Paul says of this gospel, I was made a minister. Has as its same root, that word, the, the 
root that gives us the word deacon or servant. I was made a minister, a servant, according to the gift of God's grace. Not by my own effort or merit. The gift of God's grace rendered me a minister. And this gift was given to me by the working of his power. And then notice just how emphatic Paul is as he says with astonishment, reflecting afresh on who he is in light of the calling that he has received. Verse 8, to me. To me, that's not how Paul normally starts his sentences, but he can't help himself as he is overwhelmed to think of the grace afforded to him. Verse 8, to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. If you know anything about the life of Paul, you'll know that he had a colored history prior to his salvation in Christ and one that was very much centered on persecuting Christians. So in Acts chapter 7, we read of Stephen's persecution and death. And the narrative is so short that Luke includes a very telling comment of how the men that stoned Stephen to death laid their garments at the feet of one whose name was Saul. That was Paul's name. Prior to his conversion, the Lord changed his name subsequently, originally referred to as Saul. In ancient times, whenever a stoning would occur, it would be pursued one of two ways, either planned in advance, the guilty would be pushed off a cliff, rock is dropped on them so as to end their life, and that would be the normal way of stoning someone. And then there were impromptu stonings, not planned, not premeditated, where men, as perhaps you would normally imagine, simply picked up rocks that they could find and threw them at the victim, and Stephen's stoning was of that sort. It wasn't planned. Stephen gave a speech that day that indicted the religious leaders and they were offended to the point where they decided to stone him. And because of that impromptu nature as they're picking up the rocks and throwing them, they have to get rid of their outer garments. They need the flexibility to throw the rocks and so they lay their outer garments at Saul's feet and our understanding is the one that would receive the garments was the one presiding over the affair. So Luke includes that comment in Acts chapter 7, seemingly to indicate to us, Saul, who you now know to be Paul, was involved, not only involved, but quite possibly presiding over Stephen's death. And then we get to chapter 8 of Acts and The chapter begins, Saul approved of his death. In chapters 22 and 26 of Acts, Paul, now a believer, gives his testimony 
And he recounts how he used to persecute Christians. That was what consumed him. His waking thought was the persecution of this new way, these believers. Many believe that Paul, when he says that he was a Pharisee of Pharisees, to the Philippians he writes that, was indicating his belonging to a particular sect of Pharisees, a particular sect that was zealous, certainly for the upholding of the law, but considered it an honor to take the life of one who blasphemed the name of God. Considered it an honor to kill Christians. And so Paul, prior to his conversion, was set to persecute all that identified with the Lord Jesus, and then out of nowhere, according to God's grace, he is saved, utterly transformed, given a new heart, now in love with the Lord Jesus, now a Christian himself. And the Lord commissions him with a very specific mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul reflects on his past and proclaims his utter unworthiness when he says to me, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, he says in verse 8. More literally, though I am the least of the leastest I could not be lower amongst my brothers and sisters in Christ. I am utterly unworthy to be used of the Lord. He writes to Timothy, this saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Now, I want to be clear, Paul had zero sense of guilt. It's not a guilt that comes through in his writings because he understands the gospel. He has been completely forgiven of every single sin. No guilt. And yet, he carries with him an appropriate sense of utter unworthiness. And this is his stewardship of God's grace. He stewards God's grace effectively by keeping in view his unworthiness. Now the point of correspondence between us and Paul is not that you necessarily come to Christ with a parallel story as him. I don't imagine necessarily that there are any here that persecuted Christians prior to salvation, at least not to the extent that Paul had. The parallel, the correspondence, is that we, like him, do not deserve to be here. We are not worthy of the salvation that we have received in Christ. We are not worthy of it because, as we've noted before, any sin that you commit renders you eternally culpable before God. 
It is not that you necessarily have to have killed a Christian to be eternally culpable before God. If the only sin you had ever committed, if the only sin you had ever committed was to have momentarily grumbled about the weather, if that were it, you would be eternally culpable before God. The reason being because of who He is. The sin is against Him. And because God is infinitely holy, a mere grumbling about the weather renders you culpable eternally before Him. You are worthy of eternal damnation for the smallest of sins. Setting aside persecution of Christians as Paul had sought to effect, whatever is your testimony prior to coming to salvation in Christ, it now means that you are here in Christ utterly unworthy of the privileges afforded to you. You are unworthy of the privileges afforded to you in salvation. We do not deserve to have had our sins washed away. We do not deserve to have access to our Heavenly Father. We don't deserve to be in communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't deserve to have been adopted into God's family. We don't deserve any of the blessings that Paul outlined for us in Ephesians chapter 1. Revisit that chapter, go over the blessings and recite to yourself, I don't deserve this. And you do not deserve any of the privileges afforded to you in the act of ministry. Apart from the blessings that come, part and parcel of your salvation, God then determines to use you in the life of the local church and you don't deserve it. You don't deserve the opportunity to sweep the floor. None of us deserve the opportunity to stack the chairs. Not one of us is worthy of the opportunity to lock up the building. That's how utterly unworthy we all are, and yet God, in His grace, lavishes on us. Blessing after blessing after blessing. And a faithful stewardship of God's grace is simply to keep in view your unworthiness. As you remind yourself of just how unworthy you are of the blessings that you have in Christ. It will produce a thankful heart. It will bring about and foster a humble spirit. It will bring about in you a readiness to serve others. And it will grow in your spirit, a deep abiding love for Christ.
This is how we steward God's grace. Secondly, how can we be found faithful stewards of God's grace? We practice Christ's sufficiency. We acknowledge our unworthiness. We practice Christ's sufficiency. So look again at verse 8. Paul says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given in order to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul was commissioned with a very specific ministry. At the point of his salvation on the road to Damascus, God spoke to him and said, you will be a light to the Gentiles. That was Paul's ministry. Again, and we've said this before, it's important for us to try to acknowledge just how jarring it would have been to the ears, especially of the first century Jews, that now the Gentiles are included in God's plan of salvation. Not simply that the Gentiles can join Israel, but rather that now God is forming one new man, Jew and Gentile, together. This is utterly new, unprecedented. It would take the first century Jews aback. This was Paul's life. And think again about his background. He was not merely a Jew, but a Pharisee of Pharisees. And, Paul's, and God says to this Jew, the Pharisee of Pharisees, that Jew, you are going to have a ministry to the Gentiles. Paul did not resist. He didn't hesitate. Paul knew that which the Old Testament prophet Jonah struggled and wrestled with his whole ministry, which is that salvation belongs to the Lord. It wasn't Paul's place to resist God's plan and say, but I can't bring myself to go and preach to the Gentiles of all people. He raced towards the task not limiting, but celebrating and practicing the sufficiency of Christ's power. Paul understood that the gospel was sufficient to save. Whomever God has chosen from before the foundation of the world, the gospel is sufficient to save. It was not his business to make that decision as to who he would communicate the riches of God's grace. And he goes on in verse 9, accenting that very point when he says, it was my ministry to bring to light for everyone. Speaking there most likely of the elect that God would go on to save. It was my ministry to bring that light to everyone. What is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God? Beginning with the gospel, showing them what it now means to be a worshiper. Paul was one who practiced Christ's sufficiency. The point of parallel, of commonality between our ministry and Paul's 
is not that we have received a mission with the same specificity as Paul. We spoke last week about the fact that God is today not in the business of speaking audibly or through visions, but through His Word. And at that very specific time in redemptive history, He chose Paul to preach to the Gentiles. We have a commission that you might say is broader in its scope. Going off of Matthew 28, Jesus gives us the commission to go into all the world. We then exercise wisdom to think through our efforts to communicate the gospel to others. The point of commonality between us and Paul is that like him, we should not limit Christ's sufficiency to save. We should affirm it in our hearts, celebrate it amongst us, and put it to practice. To behave in such a way that we truly, truly believe in Christ's sufficiency to save. Undoubtedly, this works itself out in a readiness in evangelism. There are lots of lines of application we could draw here. Perhaps the most obvious as we think about Paul's preaching to the Gentiles, the most obvious practical outworking of Christ's sufficiency is our readiness to expound the gospel to any that would listen. I think back to some years ago now when I was working with students and how we would go on to their college campus on a weekly basis to share the good news of the gospel to any that would listen to us. There were many, many people on the campus from all different walks of life. And one week, as I was thinking simply about the sufficiency of the gospel to save, with the small amount of self-awareness I have, I recognized that for some time I had been directing my efforts towards a particular kind of person. There were some characters on campus that did not present themselves well. There were many homeless on that campus and I realized how ready I was to distance myself from such folks. There were others who presented themselves very well. Perhaps they even had a smile on their face as they walked around and I recognized how I had been drawn to them. Why? Because somewhere in my heart, according to my sin, I was fostering the belief that these folks are more likely to receive the good news about Christ than these. These folks seem well presented. These folks seem like they're nice. They're more likely to receive the good news. And so that affected my efforts. I was limiting Christ's sufficiency to save. We must have a readiness in evangelism that comes from a conviction 
that nobody is beyond the saving power of the gospel. How else might it play out in our lives a readiness to pray? Very simply, practice Christ's sufficiency. How? Be ready in prayer. Believe that Christ hears your prayers. And believe that He desires to answer and to give you the desires of your heart. Believe that He is in the business of answering the prayers of His saints. Again, last week we talked about how great an encouragement you can be within the church simply pointing out evidences of God's grace in each other's lives. Let me add to that how great an encouragement you can be when you are ready to pray for your brother or sister in Christ, especially as problems are brought before you. I do believe there is a subtle difference between a brother or sister in Christ bringing to you their trial and you saying, I will pray for you. And a brother or sister in Christ bringing you their trial and you saying, let me pray for you right now. Be ready to pray. Be ready to let them hear you bring their trial before the throne of grace and know what an encouragement that will be to them and believe that you have a God in heaven who hears and is ready and willing to answer. Is that the attitude with which you pray because it ought to be acknowledging Christ's sufficiency not merely to save, but to sanctify and to cause to persevere, to cause his weary saints to persevere for another week. How else do we practice Christ's sufficiency? We return again and again to his sustaining grace. Again, so many lines of application, and that's all these are. How do we see Paul stewarding God's grace? He practiced Christ's sufficiency. We also ought to. How? One way is to return to God's sustaining grace. And by that, I mean the discipline of reminding yourself each and every day that God's grace is enough. The discipline of reminding yourself every single day that God's grace is sufficient. In your weakness, through your trial, there is in ministry circles often much talk of burnout. Often when you spend time with those in ministry, you come across conversations about ministry, exhaustion and burnout. Too many things, too many responsibilities, too much of a burden. And I often think it is not so much that there are too many responsibilities, but that they have been pursued apart from a constant acknowledgement of God's grace. That has to be the fuel 
that drives us forward every single day. And as Christians, we are often so very bad at allowing the grace of God to ruminate in our hearts, instead allowing it to to slip out of view such that days can be pursued, even weeks or months, in our own strength. So many responsibilities pursued in our own strength. No wonder we're exhausted. No wonder we lack joy because we have forgotten the grace of the gospel which is sufficient for us every single day. You practice Christ's sufficiency by reminding yourself of God's sustaining grace. How else are we found to be faithful stewards of this grace? Point number three, we esteem the church. We acknowledge our unworthiness. We practice Christ's sufficiency. We esteem the church. Paul goes on in verse 10, so that this ministry was given to me, so that Through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, I knew when I chose to begin Ephesians on Sunday evenings, I knew that we would be talking an awful lot about the church. I knew that because I was familiar with the letter and I believe it is the preeminent theme throughout. There are many themes in Ephesians. It is so theologically rich. If there is one theme that is overarching above all of them, I believe it is the church, the doctrine of the church. And so as we embarked upon Ephesians 1.1, I knew that for the next few years, however long it would take us to get to the end of this epistle, ecclesiology would be our focus on Sunday evenings. And I'm sure you've picked up on that emphasis. Come to church on Sunday night and hear about why you should come to church on Sunday night. Come back to church this evening and you can hear about how precious the church is. Come back this evening and you can hear about the work that is going on of a supernatural nature every single time we gather together because that is what Paul is showing them. With all of that being said, there are certain verses that seem to rise above others within the epistle in the preciousness of the truth that they communicate. And for me personally, 3.10 is one that astounds me. For everything that Paul has already said about the church, listen now to what he teaches us in Ephesians 3 verse 10. Through the church... 
the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. To who? To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. The rulers and the authorities in this verse most likely encompasses both good and evil. We know there is an angelic host surrounding God in heaven. We also know that in the heavenly places, in a way that we can't fully grasp, we understand that there are evil rulers and authorities. Paul says in this letter, the world is under the domain of the prince of the power of the air. Won't always be, but it is right now according to God's wisdom. There is both good and evil in view when Paul talks about the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. One thing we can infer from this verse is that those rulers and authorities are not omniscient. They don't know everything. And we know that because Paul tells us they are currently learning. Right now, they're learning. They're being instructed, and they are instructed, these rulers and authorities in the heavenly places, every single Lord's Day. Every Lord's Day is for them a time of learning. What's their source of learning? Is God speaking to them directly in the domain of the heavenly places? That's not what the verse says. Their source of learning is us. The rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places every Sunday look upon the church universal, made up of thousands of faithful local churches. And they learn from us about the wisdom of God. That is astounding. Before you take any credit for this, It's all a work of God's grace. He saved you. You did not save yourself. God, by His grace, gave you the awareness that now, as a Christian, you ought to belong. You should find yourself in a local body. God gave you that awareness. God has given you the conviction in your heart to show up every Sunday God gives you the desire to be with His people Lord's Day by Lord's Day. And all we're doing here is following the manual. So we can't take the credit for this. 
We follow the manual which says we gather on the Lord's Day, we sing praises to God, we read the Scriptures, we submit ourselves to the teaching of God's Word, we enjoy fellowship, that's as simple as it gets, and we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, and by His grace we'll keep doing it until the Lord Jesus calls us home. But understand that in so doing, there is a manifestation of God's wisdom. The wisdom, the manifold wisdom of God is displayed through our gathering. Not least in our sense of unity. As I've said so many times before, the wonder of the local church is that people who otherwise would have nothing to do with each other in ordinary life are now brothers and sisters in Christ, loving, genuinely loving one another. The wisdom of God is displayed through our prioritization of the church, setting aside worldly things, other commitments, so that we can be here. And the wisdom of God is displayed through our faithfulness. Again, a work of grace in our lives that we would just keep showing up. And undoubtedly, in many other ways, the manifold wisdom of God is made and put on display through the activities of every faithful local church. And so you steward God's grace by esteeming that work. Now just a very practical point of application from there. As you invest more and more of your life into this church. Understand that along the way, there will be times when undoubtedly you are offended, you'll be sinned against, you'll be wronged, because we're all sinners is not a perfect church and we're all sinners and we come together and we try to love one another and to worship together but there are bumps along the way and if you stick around there'll be times when you're wronged and sinned against and to esteem the church to stewards God's grace by esteeming the church is at those times to forgive. It is to be ready and willing to forgive one another. To deny your pride. To deny yourself. To lay down your life again and again and again for the sake of the church. We esteem the church and thereby steward God's grace. Finally, how can we be found faithful stewards of God's grace? Acknowledge our unworthiness. Practice Christ's sufficiency. Esteem the church. Finally, we do not lose heart. We steward God's grace. How? By not losing heart. Paul says in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that 
he, God, has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 12, in whom we have boldness, access with confidence through our faith in him. So, I ask you not to lose heart. Don't lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul concludes this section before he begins the second prayer of the letter. He concludes this section by acknowledging the access we have to God. Through Christ, we can approach him with boldness and confidence. And in light of that access that we have, and indeed in light of all the blessings that he's outlined, he says, so please don't be discouraged. Notice just the, the play there, the access that we have is juxtaposed with the limitations that Paul was experiencing. He's writing under house arrest. One of the prison epistles is not free to go anywhere. We have access to God's throne, so don't be discouraged by my present experience or indeed by any of my sufferings. And then he says, and this is so curious, which is your glory. Don't lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. In verse 12, as he speaks about the access, he brings into view yet another blessing. At the end of verse 13, he's alluding to the means by which they experience that blessing. It's not to say that Paul's ministry in and of itself, was salvation to them, Paul was a vessel of God's grace. But similar, as Paul would write to the Colossians, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. It's not that the afflictions were lacking in their substitutionary value, their worth, but they were limited in their geographical extent. And so Paul perpetuates the ministry. In the same way, Paul says, I was the vessel that God used to bring you the gospel of your salvation. And, and by way of that gospel, you now have access to this throne of grace. And thus, my imprisonment can be equated to your glory. My suffering is to your benefit. What's the principle that we need to learn? It is very simply that not one of us ought to lose heart, be discouraged, because God is at work so as to use every trial, every earthly hindrance, everything that we may suffer in this life is being used by God in His plan of furthering the gospel. Whether it be your own personal trial, it's not wasted in God's economy. Nothing ever is. Or whether it is that this day your heart is heavy and you mourn with 
another brother or sister because of their trial. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged because you can rest in a safe and secure knowledge of God using it for the furthering of His gospel in such a way that may only become clear when you get to glory. You may not fully realize how God is using your trial or the trial of another within His plan, but you can be assured and trust that He indeed is. When you put your faith in Christ, you step into the domain of God's sovereign grace. And your whole life now exists in that domain. Nothing is ever wasted. God ordains every trial perfectly and He will use it in such a way that His gospel will not fail. It will go to the ends of the earth and one day in glory you may look back and say that was God's perfect plan. So as we retreat to this truth, and it is a discipline to retreat to the truth of God's sovereign grace in your life, go there, choose to lead your heart there again and again. My life is hidden in Christ, it is under God's sovereign grace. Be there in your thoughts daily. And as you retreat to that truth, then you may steward His grace faithfully. How? By not losing heart. May we be encouraged. Not discouraged. May we not lose heart, but be full of heart. Because of what God is doing amongst us and through us to the praise of His glory. Let's pray now together to close. Father, we give You thanks for this text from Paul to the Ephesians, now to us. As we sit here this evening, we receive Your Word, and we ponder Paul's example of stewarding God's grace and the implications for our own lives. We pray that we would be found faithful stewards of the grace that we have received. Help us, Father, always to acknowledge our unworthiness. We're not worthy of the salvation we have received. We're not worthy of any of the blessings that Paul spells out for us in chapter 1 of this letter. We are not worthy of the opportunities afforded to us in the life of the local church. They're all an expression of your grace. Help us keep to keep before us as Paul did, our own unworthiness. Father, help us to practice Christ's sufficiency. Paul did not 
hesitate to run towards the Gentiles and preach to them the gospel. As culturally difficult as that may have been for a first century Jew, he understood the sufficiency of Christ to save. May that be our own conviction in our efforts to speak the truth of the gospel to others, in our prayer life, in our readiness to return to your sustaining grace. Help us to believe and to practice Christ's sufficiency. Oh, Father, help us to esteem the church. We can barely take it in that this instrument, the church, would be used by you to instruct the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places concerning your wisdom. Every time we gather there, is a supernatural reality that far transcends what we see as those in the heavenlies receive another lesson about your wisdom. May we be ready to forgive one another, to set aside our offended pride, to lay down our lives, for the unity of the local church, understanding just how precious it is within your plan of salvation. And we pray that we would not lose heart. As stewards of your grace, help us not to lose heart. Help us to retreat to the wonderful truth that we live our lives according to to the economy of your sovereign grace. Nothing is wasted. It is perfectly ordained by you. Our trials and times of abundance, our afflictions and our celebrations, they all come under your sovereign grace and they are being used by you the furtherance of the gospel. So may we be greatly encouraged, not faint of heart, but full of heart, as we seek to steward the grace given to us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.